asking a question, uh, what's your favourite campfire experience? So just throw your mind back with some of the possibility of going camping or those lovely holidays, it's, it's maybe just creeping around the corner. So many of you do that, actually speak from our very own congregation, how dare they? Instead of being here, they're away camping, maybe. What's your favourite campfire experience? Well, a few years ago, I had one that was particularly memorable. We went to a campsite in Uleys. Has anyone ever heard of that one? Kind of down the south coast, kind of way. Basically, it's a farm that gets converted into this kind of like festival campsite thing for like five weeks over the summer. Otherwise, it's a farm all year round. But just for five magical weeks, becomes this playground for camping. It's right on the beach. There's like a dog petting area. There's a kind of gourmet pizza bar. They get set up, there's hay bales all over the place, so it's very like family friendly. It's this amazing place, and it's a great idea to turn the farm into a campsite for five weeks. So we went with some friends a few years back, and on the first, you know, we drove, we were just going for one night. We've been there once before, and we thought, let's go back. We got invited for one night with some friends, we thought, let's do it, let's make the journey there, we'll come back the next day, but just that one night is going to be really worth it. So we get down there, it's a beautiful day, we spend the time near the beach, we come back, we've got some food, Little fires going, barbecuing, and I'm just thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. You know, sometimes you're sat around a fire and you're like, this is as good as it gets. This is the whole human experience here, right now. Grilled chicken, all sorts of good chorizo on the barbecue, the smoke, you know, you're going to smell that for like a week afterwards, and you don't care. It's good conversation, the sun's going down, it is blissful. About 2 a.m. that night, something stood in my stomach. And I was like rolling around in my sleeping bag and I was like, I just can't sleep, I'm uncomfortable. I've got like, I'm sweating a little bit, it's really cold, what's going on? Something's not quite right. I just shake it off, drink some water, fall back asleep. 3 a.m. rolls around. And I know, you know, you know, you know, something's wrong. Something's like, not kind of wrong, something's really wrong. I got out of that tent quicker than you've ever seen someone unzip something and move out. It's pitch black outside, I can't see anything, and I have a vague recollection, really vague, of where the campsite toilets are, like roughly. Basically, I was like, you know, you, you don't want to run in public, very much me, so I'm just sort of walking like this, I know something's not quite right, I'm throwing my mind back, and I'm like, I had two helpings of chicken, no one else touched the chicken, did they? Why did I have to have two? I'm really kind of, I'm walking a little bit quicker. And then my body really let me know. And I was like, right, that's it. And I'm sprinting through this camp field. And I'm just running with everything I've got. <laughs> and I'm, you know, like guidelines, I'm just tripping it over. I'm like, I'm sure I've left the path of destruction behind me. And I'm racing to get to the edge of this camp field. In I get to the toilet, and I was there for about three or four hours. I, Maddie didn't know where I was. She didn't know if I had like just abandoned sight, you know, halfway through the night. She knew I was feeling great. I come back to the tent, it's like 6 or 7 in the morning, and Maddie's like, welcome back, what's going on? And I, just, I didn't say a thing, I just rolled over and I was out. And that was, that was our trip, that was the whole trip. The, they, the friends went off exploring into the town the next day, I was just literally laid out. In the, you know, the, the, um, they get too hot during the morning, the, the tents, so I'm just like outside on the grass, I look like a dead man. I'm just lying there for the whole of the trip. And then miraculously started to feel better, well enough basically to drive home. So that was my camping trip, and I remembered it, and I loved it. It was very memorable, possibly the most memorable campfire experience I've ever had, for the wrong reasons. And you know, a fire, that smell, when I first started this story, I asked to throw my mind back. 
and you can remember what the smell of the fire is, that smoking smell. You'll have it on your hoodie or your jeans for, for weeks to come. It, it brings back the memories, doesn't it? Like nothing else. Do you know that your sense of smell is the most effective sense for recalling memory? And it has that emotional connection. Your ability to remember what you were, what you were feeling. If you get the same smell, your brain can just take it straight back. It's incredible. But we're going to be talking about a particularly memorable fireside experience tonight. And that smell is very important for the person because it would become a trigger point for them later on. Actually, I'm just going to read, if you have the, um, the reference up, if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to read along with me. It's John chapter 18, following on quite nicely from God's talk this morning. We had a lesson on um, Bible copyright um, just last uh, week. And I'm not going to be reading the whole of John because apparently that's illegal. Would you believe it? So I'm going to, I know. I know, shock horror. If that's what you've remembered from tonight, you've been taught something. You can't read the whole book. 500 verses or something like that. Anyway, John chapter 18, I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 14. And I'm going to skip and just read verses 25 to 27. This is John chapter 18. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons, so we know there was a night. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Jesus portrayed him, standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I love that picture of all Jesus being say was, I am, and people just fell over. Again he asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you were looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled, I have not lost one of those that he gave me. Verse 10, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, the servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers that his commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who would advise Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man were to die for the people. Simon Peter, let's just read this a little bit. Simon Peter uh, and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back spoke to the servant girl on duty there, brought Peter in. You are one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Then let's just go to verse 25 here. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, You are one of those disciples too, are you? He denied it again, saying, I am not. And then one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? And obviously this is a criminal accusation, because if they were recognizing him from the garden, that was, that was an illegal thing that took place after he attacked someone. 
And again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. And if you are familiar with the story, you remember that Jesus prophesied that this would happen. He was saying, Peter, you promised you'd go with me to the end. But before the night is out, we'll deny you three times. And this was that moment where it's happened. Man, it's a sad passage. It's a really sad passage. Um, this is one of the darkest, probably the darkest moments in all of Scripture. There's actually a really powerful moment in one of the other Gospels where, as this night begins, it describes the disciples leaving where they were, and then it was night. And there is this kind of imagery used that this was a dark, dark moment that we were all walking into, and especially when we read Scripture together, we get a sense of that, right? You feel that sort of heaviness, that darkness as you move through this. I want to talk about a few failures that happened uh, in this story. We're going to talk about the failure of religion. We're going to talk about the failure of people and the failure of God. Before you can start booing me, just let me get to that point and I'll explain what I mean. First of all, the failure of religion. Now, you'll remember that I mentioned the name Anas. And at this moment, Anas and Caiaphas, they were both kind of high priests at the same time. It's a bit confusing how it works, but basically they assumed the same office. And Anas represents Judaism, a religious heart, a religious attitude towards God. But ultimately in this story, a religious attitude that cannot handle Jesus. A religion that says, actually I don't agree with what you're saying, I reject you. And we witness the failure of religion as this high priest condemns Jesus and doesn't want anything to do with him. The high priest is a really important figure. If you can throw your mind back to Old Testament stories and literature, you'll know that the high priest really is the single most important point of contact for the Jewish people. He's the representative. He's the one that's supposed to be interceding on their behalf. He's the one that goes into the Holy of Holies. He is everything for the Jewish religion. He's such an important role. And Jesus' ministry, interestingly, begins with a miracle at a wedding. Do you remember that one in John chapter 2? What happens at that miracle? Can anyone tell me? Very famous one. Water is wine. Very famous miracle. But what's interesting is that what's happening here, from the very get-go, Jesus is making a massive statement with this miracle. In the story, it's so interesting. The wine comes from six ceremonial washing basins or jugs. And interestingly, John loves numbers, absolutely loves numbers. More than Dave loves the number seven, John loves the number seven. Because it represents something, holiness and completeness. So the fact that there were six Jewish ceremonial cleansing uh, continues is John's way of saying the religion's not going to save you. The religion's not enough. The law, the doing, the this, the that, the trying, it's not enough. But Jesus comes and provides wine instead of water, a symbol of things to come, maybe. And so his ministry begins on the outset of saying religion is not enough. And at the very end of his ministry, here he is facing the high priest, the man who's meant to represent everything that's good and holy and possible, a connection to God for the Jewish people. All that history, all those promises, all those stories, this man knows them. And he says, Jesus, it's not you, you're not one. You're claiming to be something you're not. And he condemns him and he says, off you go to the next person. He points him off. It's so actually the end of Jesus' earthly ministry starts with this dramatic moment where not only is religion shown not to be enough, but it actually is not compatible with Jesus and what he says and what he teaches. Religion, a little bit like Judas in this story, 
says that God owes us because of what we've done. That's the religious message, that we've done something and therefore God owes me. But grace says that we owe God. Religion says, I am loved because I obey. But grace, everything that Jesus said, teaches us that we are loved first. Therefore, we obey. Do you see how they're totally different ways of thinking? And so in this story, we see the failure of religion. But we also see another failure. The failure of people. Peter, in this story, represents us. He represents every single one of us. Who may have the best intentions, but still gets it wrong. Who here, put my hand up, if you've had good intentions and still made a mistake. Evan? Yes? Good. As a new parent, that happens daily. Maybe by the hour. I don't know. Good intentions, not quite enough. I think I'm doing the right thing, but there's about 15 books that will disagree with you and contradict each other. No matter how good your intentions are, still someone's going to get it wrong. Tom Wright has this really interesting phrase when he's reflecting on this passage. He says, betrayal, after all, this is what Peter did. He betrays Jesus, his closest friend, uh, his leader. Tom Wright says, betrayal is the sin of motive. Look at this. Betrayal is the sin of motive. Because what he means by that is that in the correct circumstances, if the situations around you are in a certain way, we will all make mistakes. So actually there's this motive uh, that can be the whole root of the betrayal sin. But this is really interesting. What does this mean about forgiveness? If all of us are going to make mistakes at some point, what does this mean about forgiving people who betray us? What about when we betray others? How does forgiveness work in that instance? Isn't it funny? Have you ever been wronged? Uh, maybe you've been driving and someone cuts you up. What happens? That person's an idiot. Did you see what it is? In a split second, this might just be me. The person's gone from just being a member of the public to Satan himself. And you've just decided they are evil, they're unintelligent, they should never be given a driver's license, they're dangerous, I can't believe they're out on the road. You just go from zero to a hundred. That is so human nature. We absolutely love this. Black and white, right and wrong. I'm perfect, I've never done anything wrong, I'm a great driver, been on a couple of courses. But they, they should not be allowed on the road. No way, dangerous, should not be allowed. We love it, we love black and white. I'm right, you're wrong. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. The betrayal of Peter and of Judas reminds us of the universality of sin. This word that we use to talk about missing the mark, getting it wrong, this ideal way of living, just not quite matching up to it. We all have that problem. It's baked into our DNA. Romans 3.23 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, to some extent or another, have made these mistakes. And I stand here tonight believing in original sin and original goodness. I believe that we're all corrupt from the beginning, and we're all made in God's image. Isn't that confusing? So we're both divine and dastardly. We just get it right, and we get it wrong. God has made us in His image, we are wonderful, there's nothing on earth. It's incredible as you are tonight. But also, man, we get it wrong sometimes, don't we? We're really confusing people. So actually, it's never as simple as being black and white. We're all on this scale somewhere of humanness. And so actually, we look at Peter, we look at Judas, and we think, how did they get it so wrong? How did they make that betrayal? And then if someone wrongs you, how did they do that? How? How is it possible? Actually, bear in mind the universality of sin. 
humbles you, and it means actually they have just made a bad choice where maybe I, in that situation, if I was late to work and needed to pay a lane on someone, maybe I would have done the same thing. Maybe given the right circumstances, I could also be tempted to mess up in that way. And actually sort of puts us all on a level playing field, on a sliding scale, 50 shades of grey, right and wrong, it's not black and white, it's all this sliding scale of human error, human goodness, trying to figure it out. I wonder if we believed in original sin, and original goodness, if we would have more grace for one another when we get it wrong, as Peter really, really did. So what about the failure of God? Okay, there's an asterisk on this one, the perceived failure of God, I can't that, okay? So you don't have to kick me out straight away. The perceived failure of God. Jesus felt the absence of his Father in this moment. This is the darkest moment in all of Scripture. And Jesus, who um, has the closest, most intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father, in this moment, must have been beginning to doubt or to question, or to feel afraid or alone. We see that Jesus actually is struck, uh, there was one, one of the bits um, that I missed, I maybe should have read it, but Jesus is actually slapped across the face in this trial. If you think back to the earlier part of the story, Peter gets his sword out and he cuts off the ear of one of the servants nearby. Violence has begun, and it will escalate from this point. And Jesus' physical suffering at the hands of government, even religious people. It happens nowadays. Would you believe it? In the persecuted church, all around the world, in hundreds of countries, there are Christians being beaten, imprisoned, tortured, and killed because of their belief that Jesus was who he said he was. And Jesus is going through it in this moment. An unfair trial, accused, without enough witnesses, being beaten and mocked, and it was only going to get worse. And as the church across the world joins in and follows in Jesus' footsteps, they ask the same question that he did just a few hours later on from this story, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus experiences this sort of atheism, he gives voice to our feelings at our lowest moments. So when we cry out that God feels far away, Jesus says, I know how you feel. So when we cry out and we say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is this situation so difficult? Why have I been betrayed? Why have I been let down? Why have I messed up and screwed up? God, where are you in this? I can't see you. I can't feel you. Jesus isn't on some cloud playing a harp, saying, well, you've got to get better. You've got to get better. I'm here. If only you read your Bible more. If only you prayed more. If only this. If only that. Religion, religion, religion. That's not Jesus. Jesus says, my brother, my sister, I know how you feel. I understand your pain in its deepest, rawest, most hurtful way. I know your pain. I know how you feel. I hope you're feeling uh, chirpy this evening after all of this. It's been a little bit heavy, hasn't it? There's one more point that I didn't tell you about. And it's this. The failure of darkness. Hopefully we've got that on there as well. The failure of darkness. 
despite this being the darkest moment in the whole of scripture, or the beginning of it, John constantly in his book is referring to the fact that it's nighttime. It's cold, it's wet, it's fire, it's at night. Constantly referring to nighttime, and it's symbolic for pain and suffering, God's absence, all of these things. But even in the middle of this darkest night, there is a fire that Peter is warming up, the self fire, and it's not been put out. Even in the middle of this darkest night, there are three lights that shine like stars in the night sky. Here they are. Number one, in this passage where it's all going wrong, Caiaphas is mentioned. Everybody say Caiaphas. 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 Nice name, I like that name. Thank you, Mikey, the energy at the back then. Caiaphas, his presence in this story reminds us that suffering is painted on a canvas bigger than what we can see. The presence of Caiaphas reminds us that suffering is painted on a canvas bigger than what we can see. It's so interesting that Caiaphas, just a few chapters earlier, trying to figure out what do we do with this person, Jesus, he pipes up in front of this group of religious people and says, well, you know what, maybe it's not so bad that one person dies in order to save the whole nation. Now, he didn't know what he was saying, but God knew, yeah, that is what's going to happen. One person is going to die, and they are going to save a whole group. And so even in the middle of this unfair trial, the presence of Caiaphas reminds us that actually God is still at work, even in mysterious and unknown ways, on a canvas much bigger than what we sometimes see in our short-term view. Secondly, Peter reminds us that even in our failures, God can use them for good. And hallelujah for that. Even in our lowest moments, our biggest mistakes, when you feel like your life has gone as far away from the path as it could have done, God can still use that and still will use that for good. Jesus actually said to Peter, I know that you're going to mess up, but when you come back, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew. He knew that this was going to happen to Peter, and still he was going to build his church through him. The mistake and the failure might not have been God's ideal scenario for Peter, but man, he was going to use that to train him to equip the church and help him to grow the way that it did. And finally, Jesus reminds us that it is possible not to break under the greatest pressures. And even if we do, he will always remain steadfast. Despite being struck in the face, despite an unfair trial, despite knowing that his best, closest friend had just sat him in the bank, he does not bend, he does not change face, he does not give up hope. Let me finish by reading this verse. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you that tonight, um, just looking at this passage, Lord, we are kind of overwhelmed at the darkness and the sadness and the heaviness of it. The Lord is so encouraged that the darkness can overcome the light. And Lord, as we prepare for Easter, God, we're so encouraged that no matter what the darkness or how deep it feels, Lord, we know that there was a fire lit that night and the darkness could not put out. And it was symbolic of the hope that lived on. Lord, I pray that we would learn from Peter's life that you know failure is never final, that you never give up on us. And Lord, there is always hope, always a way through. You're always with us. You know how we feel. 
Lord, be with us as we remember this going into this holy week. Lord, that no matter the darkness, it cannot put out the light. In Jesus' name, amen.